0: Yeah, so I was saying just before I pressed record button, um, I didn't appreciate the studio would be this cold. So I've turned the heater on. Oh yeah, that feels nice. Oh god, I wish I could. St- <laughs> I wish I could sit on it. And um, the problem is because I do cold baths, I run quite cold for most of the day. It takes a lot to to heat up. And as you know, because we were talking about this last week, I've given up coffee. So normally that would kind of warm me up. I don't even have. I don't have that anymore. Yeah. So now. I'm a bit oh, shivery. No. I'm
1: a bit shivery. Oh, I was just gonna say I'm really getting into the cold therapy now as well. So Really? That's cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, I've got one of those um oh uh, I, I bought one of those like fairly inexpensive just plunge things so it sits in our backyard and so I'm sure the neighbors all think I'm a bit strange. <laughs> and they look out and I'm there in my swimming costume at I don't know, seven in the morning, getting into this. Strange looking bucket thing that you just sit in for a while. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing.
0: I love it. And because you're uh, up in Edinburgh, it's bloody freezing all year round. I mean, what temperature is the water now?
1: Oh, I haven't actually checked, but this morning I did chicken out and I thought oh, I'll do it later on. I'm not doing it first thing because I think it, I did it yesterday morning and it, it was, I don't know, it was about five, six degrees outside, I think. So,
0: and how long do you yeah, do yeah, it It's going
1: to become more, more, more challenging. Yeah. Uh oh gosh, I don't not not too long, so maybe just about six, eight weeks,
0: something like that. No, no, as in like how long are you actually in the bucket thing for?
1: Oh I see. Oh, um oh it depends, so it depends how cold it is, but I think the longest I've done is about twenty minutes. Um, Whoa. So I'm working it up. Whoa! Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh
1: really? <laughs> That's a long time.
0: I wish I had not, twenty not minutes. At
1: seven degrees. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. There's
0: that. That can be a challenge. Yeah. So I do about five minutes. I do about five minutes. But when, when the temperature okay. gets and is that down, ice? Is it- just the tap water coming out, but it's cold. I mean, it's normally about under ten degrees, like nine. In the summer, I add ice. But like now, now I think it's about yeah. nine, nine, 10 degrees, and. The okay. lowest it's got is about three degrees in, in winter. And that I could only do for about three minutes, two, three minutes. Normally I'm in for five minutes quite comfortably, but you know, I was like, yeah. getting like rainbows in my fingers and everything. <laughs> I was like, I need to get out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, my hands were a bit stiff yesterday. I didn't notice that. Yeah. So, so why yeah, are you, considerably colder.
0: Yeah, why are you doing it?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm getting really interested in all this quantum health stuff and I'm already fascinated as it is with mitochondria and just mitochondrial health. So there's just so many benefits to cold therapy. And I I think particularly as a psychiatrist in relation to stress management and anxiety management, and also if you're looking for a bit of a dopamine hit, um, it can be really, really helpful. So I tend to talk about it now with patients, particularly if they have depression, because um, I, I had a lady recently and she was saying that she usually eats a healthy diet, but um, in the context of being depressed, she was just snacking on chocolate biscuits and coffee. And, and she was obviously doing things to try to get a dopamine hit because of depression being a bit of a dopamine deficient state. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of partly exploring for myself, but also for, for everybody else too.
0: Do you, do you do anything in particular as a little routine? So for me, I, I have a really hot shower. And then I go straight into the cold bath and everyone knows, don't disturb daddy. (laughs) Because the problem is in my house with with little kids, they'll come in, they'll come in just, where's daddy? Daddy, daddy never gets a, you know, time out on his own. So it's like, where's daddy? And, you know, we don't lock the door. So they come in and like, daddy, daddy, what's going on? I'm like, no, no, it's my cold bath time. So they kind of know that. So I get left alone and I play some music and it's the same thing again and again.
1: Uh-huh. so my- what i've actually been doing and i'm not saying this to suck up at all but <clears> yesterday morning i think it was i was sitting listening to one of your latest podcasts and it was just being broadcast on loudspeaker for my mobile and i think it was at about half six in the morning so when i was already in there i was thinking oh i hope it's not going to wake the neighbors up <laughs> but like some people if they're out early in the gardens they are going to get a dose of reality about what's going on these days <laughs> <laughs> i love it so-
0: Okay. Okay. We, we we all have our, yeah, little things. That's great. So yeah, I always say to my patients as well, no one comes out of a cold bath unhappy. <laughs> Everything just seems wonderful when you come out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've had, um, I've used it later in the day after a really stressful day. And you know, when you get a bit of a stress headache or things have just really built up over the course of a day and I always feel like a new person after I come out. You know, it would be my one go to to manage those kind of issues. Definitely,
0: I might try that. So I've, I've always just done it in the morning, um, but I think you're right. Mm. And I found, like for example, just dealing with my three kids. You know, they're arguing or taking ages to get ready. You know, it's funny. I get up really early. I start making breakfast, make pack lunch, do everything for them first. You know, the little one clean his bottom, mm-hmm. whatever. And then um, you know. I, send the kids up, right, get ready. And I'm looking at the clock. We've got plenty of time, 55 minutes. I go up like 15 minutes before we were meant to leave. And they're all just sitting around naked playing or whatever with their doll. I'm like, what's going on? Ah! But I find if I do a cold bath, I'm just a bit more zen-like. I'm like a Buddha. I'm like, everyone, come on, we're leaving now. You have to get ready. There's no ah. So I definitely find it helps. It just keeps you hammer, <laughs> And it. It works for most of the day for me but um if during Mm -hmm. later on the day i am feeling a bit stressed or anything i think i will definitely try i haven't tried it like that i think this is important what we're talking about rachel because i don't think anyone is Mm -hmm. immune to you know anxiety and feeling low or down no You know, it can affect everyone, no matter how resilient you are. I think the only people it doesn't really affect are psychopaths because they don't give a shit about anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they only get anxious when when their own personal uh, position has been threatened. Isn't mm, that right?
0: Yeah, but for everyone
2: else. you're, You're right.
1: Yeah, yeah, it can affect everybody, like no exception. No I would agree. Yeah no and exception. so I um it, yeah instead of hot showers I've been really getting into sauna routines as well. So that's the other the other side of it. So uh yeah I just recently I've just got like a mobile sauna type at home thing nothing fancy and built in although that would be the ultimate dream but uh yeah I've just been just been trying to up my detoxification game more recently, so that's really nice to do. Combine sauna with cold therapy.
0: I love sauna. There's nowhere in our house that we could put a sauna. We got. I, we live in a tiny cottage, and I don't have any money for that. <laughs> what the hell is a mobile? Yeah. What is a mobile sauna? For me, a mobile oh, sauna you, would be like oh, you get, layering up and sitting in a in a sleeping bag <laughs> <laughs> with a hot water bottle. Well,
1: yeah. It's- well, oh, yeah, you do get sleeping bag um, saunas, although I've tried one of those and it just didn't get hot enough for me. Okay. Um, so it's just essentially a portable. So I don't know if mobile, <clears throat> maybe mobile wasn't the right word, but yeah, just a, a portable sauna thing that you can pack away. um it gets pretty hot, gets a good sweat going. So, uh, yeah.
0: Cool. cool. I might There's lots look of them out that. there in the market. I did not <laughs> know that. I did not know that. So listen, tell me, Rachel oh. Brown, Dr. Rachel Brown, consultant, psychiatrist. You know, you're quite well known. Everybody knows about you. It's funny, I'm chatting to people and they're I'm really? like, oh yeah, I'm going to be having a podcast with Dr. Rachel Brown. Oh, I know her. She's a carnivore shrink. I'm like, yeah, yeah, follow her. Oh, God. <laughs> you're quite popular.
1: <laughs> oh, oh well, that's good to hear. I'm not sure I was aware of that, but yeah, that's, that's nice to hear. No, I seriously. I feel like the message isn't getting out.
0: So no, it's definitely getting out. So I, I am, um, I wanted to get the guy who co-set up Hunter and Gather, um, you know, they do all oh, these yes. seed oil free, whatever, condiments, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have them all, all the olive yeah, oils, avocados, the mayonnaise, delicious. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned to him, oh yeah, I know Dr. Rachel Brand. she's going to be coming on my podcast and he was like, oh, Carnival Shrink, I know her. But there you go. <laughs> and everyone, and like, so,
2: yeah, I think that's,
1: yeah, yeah. He contacted me not not all that long ago, just on social media, and um, was just being encouraging about the messages I'm putting out there, which was nice. But I, when I was keto years ago, I, I don't know how much of the stuff I must have bought of theirs in terms of their um, avocado mayo, but it's really good stuff, really good stuff to use. And so, so that's funny.
0: So now that you're you 're carnivore carnivore shrink does that mean you don 't have things like olive oil and avocado oil
1: um yeah i, I don 't tend to include that stuff in my diet though I would say i'm not i 'm not completely dogmatic, so i wouldn't be averse to trying something now and then if somebody put it in front of me but it 's just that i 'm not really generally using that stuff day to day in my own diet um, so and it 's the same with um you know, certain low carb fruits, or um, there was someone in your podcast the other day, I've forgotten their name, but I love medicinal mushrooms. So I, I definitely think plants have their role. And I often think of plants as medicine. So I'm not averse to including things as need be. Um, but yeah, the main, the mainstay of my diet is around animal foods.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm like you then. I'm very, I'm not completely absolute on this or that, but. Having spoken to like Barbara Wilkinson, who's into herbal medicine, the herbal society, you really appreciate the role that plants um play in medicine through the ages, through millennia and and the drugs oh, yeah. and everything. And it's and just, just to say all plants are bad and evil, and <laughs> this is like, no. There's like there's good cause I know like people like Paul no, Saladino yeah. and other Anthony Chaffee talks about all the defense chemicals and toxins, but there's definitely a role for plants in our diet and in our health but when it comes to like what is our evolutionary diet I think it really is meat-based so I'm heavy yeah on that
1: so yeah agreed and um carry on I was just gonna say I I think plants is the original the original medicine weren't they before um Rockefellers and and the sort of modern medical system, um, with all of its corruption. But uh, <laughs> I'll try not to talk too much about that. But you know, you know the you know the drill. We should talk a little
0: bit about it. So, how does it feel being a mainstream consultant psychiatrist, practicing? You know, in the NHS. Do you do you ever think we overmedicalize and and all these protocols and guidelines are misplaced?
1: Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, being honest, it feels quite uncomfortable. Um, especially, especially with having studied functional medicine and and just always having had an inclination to have a preference for natural treatments and holistic health and trying to address root cause of illness. I I, I really don't think that modern medicine does that well at all. And um, there are many many examples. Um, in just allopathic medicine where we're not really addressing the underlying cause of illness whatsoever and I don't know about how you feel about your training but I very much feel as though I was just taught pattern recognition um, to make diagnoses to then go on to prescribe pharmaceuticals and and modern medicine in my view is a bit of an echo chamber so um, most mainstream colleagues their first thought um, when, when we're, let's like, say we go to a lecture and we're, we're discovering a new underlying potential cause for certain mental disorders. Some of the first thoughts of people um, that they go to is, oh, maybe Pharma will make a new drug for this or maybe Pharma will come out with a different drug for that. And I think we really underemphasize um, lifestyle interventions and, and just getting the basics down properly. So, yeah, so uncomfortable and um, the NHS is is being dismantled in front of our eyes. That's another aspect of being a, in the NHS that makes it stressful and difficult place to be.
0: Yeah, 100%. So let's focus on that latter topic. I, I think too many people, again, there's too many sacred cows. They have this idea that this NHS is this wonderful treasure, national treasure, and it's owned by the state by the people and it's free it's none of those it's not free we pay a lot of money for it a lot of it's actually privatized very little of of its Mm -hmm. national state assets anymore much of its pfi or contracted Mm -hmm. out to private organizations and it's been done and run in such a way that's broken the back of the morale of the frontline doctors and nurses and it's crippled their critical mm-hmm. thinking and and these central policies and guidelines coming down are essentially diktats that strip away that individualized patient doctor care that's what the way i see it mm-hmm. um so let, yeah, let's not do- I,
1: yeah i don't
2: disagree with you sad isn't it i mean it? i i so i
1: oh yeah it's incredibly sad and well, I've been a consultant since 2011 in the NHS, but then obviously been sort of graduated 2003, working in psychiatry since 2004. And I I cannot recall a time um, that was any worse than how things are now in terms of having enough resource and staff and staff morale. And and yeah, there's so many different reasons as to why that's the case. But it, but I think it all factors into to what we're seeing happening in front of our eyes.
0: Yeah. And about root cause, yeah, there were very few things that we were taught about root cause. I think one of the things that really attracted me about orthopedic surgery was, I kind of saw the root cause, the bus drove into the bicycle (laughs) rider (laughs) and fell off and then he broke his femur. You know, it was kind of obvious what the cause was, the root cause. You know, there was always some root cause, some trauma or something. And uh, I, I really, I really just loved that. Like, I could never do rheumatology because, like, what causes Shogun disease? What causes rheumatol this rheumatological problem? This rheumatoid arthritis? What causes psoriatic arthritis? What causes? And no one has an answer, but everyone has the treatment, which is steroids or you know methotrexate or some other kind of disease modifying agent. No one had like any idea why it happened, and a lot of the medical kind of conditions. And diseases were like that. And, and that really drove me mad. I was like, but there must be something driving it. So that's why I kind of gravitated towards trauma because I just love the fact it was just obvious, you know, this is a problem and this is, you know, the solutions that we can offer. And um, when it comes to psychiatry, mm-hmm. I've got family members who are psychiatrists and they can never tell me like why things happen. Like why do people get schizophrenia? Why do they get depression? It was just, we don't know it's chemical imbalances what well, what is going on there what is going on there apart from the fact that the, their their problem is that they're not taking the latest antidepressant or anxiolytic what is actually really causing their problem
1: <laughs> okay for a start it's not a chemical imbalance so that absolutely drives me insane <laughs> that that phrase that is just repeated like dogma over and over and over again um I'm used to people just saying, oh, it's really complex when it comes to mental health. And and it's not untrue, but it's a bit of a get out excuse, really, when people say that to, to people who are struggling. Um, gosh, there are things we don't know, but I think there's a lot more that we do know now. And so much of it comes back to um, all of our bodily systems that all work together. So... So one of my pet hates in modern medicine is just the different silos that we're all put into in, in allopathic medicine. So a neurologist deals with people who have seizures and a psychiatrist deals with people who feel sad. But at the end of the day, they're both dealing with underlying dysfunctions of the brain. Um, mm. And there are so many connections in the body. So like from a functional medicine perspective, um, my view is that everything comes back comes back to mitochondrial health but also gut health and your mention of rheumatoid arthritis and all the sort of rheumatology issues which are essentially all autoimmune disorders again all of this comes back to gut health um, as well and I think we know a lot more these days about gut health with all the microbiome research that's been going on but certainly there's lots that we still don't know Um, but what we can say is that there are clear connections between the gut and the brain so the vagus nerve connects them. There's signaling that goes back and forth um, in terms of neurological signaling that happens between the brain and the gut and vice versa. But also immune mediators, um, other hormonal cascades. There are other ways that the gut and the brain communicate to each other. And so. Um, this gets into the, the realm of food because what we put into our gut comes in direct contact with our gut cell wall, but all of the microbes that reside in our microbiome. And essentially I think the microbes are running the show. So mm. it's probably not us that it's uh, really running things. And if we put foods in there such as gluten, for example, it can give you leaky gut. And if you have leaky gut, you get um like LPS, endotoxemia. So bacterial products that cross over the gut wall into the systemic bloodstream and you get an immune response. And this provokes inflammation and it can provoke inflammation in the brain via altering the permeability of your blood brain barrier. And then microbes and toxins can pass over into the brain and cause inflammation there. And then that's where you get um, tipped off um neurotransmitter cascades, so different pathways that might then become dysfunctional or out of balance. Um, And then we know that metabolic health is a huge thing um, because we also know that sugar is inflammatory and it can also contribute to um, dysfunction in different neurotransmitter pathways, such as ending up with far too much glutamate which is excitatory, so that can make people feel agitated or cognitively knocked off, and then not having enough GABA, which is the relaxation neurotransmitter. Um, so there are just just so many different mechanisms, and and I think a lot of the research these days is showing that, particularly in Alzheimer's disease, 80% of people have insulin resistance, so they've lived with chronically high levels of insulin for many years, Um without knowing it. We don't do the right tests in the NHS. So if you check a random fasting glucose or an HbA1c level, that's only gonna really show um, if your blood glucose has started to rise, but you can be in a very high insulin state and unless you're checking your fasting insulin level, you wouldn't know Mm. that you have a problem with insulin levels until you develop Frank type two diabetes, which would be end stage insulin resistance. And so yeah, there's just so many different connections. It is. And uh, yeah, even even something like stress can give you leaky gut. So we know from animal studies that even just a psychological stressor directly impacts on the gut. And this just shows us communication that happens between the gut and the brain. It's,
0: it's like fascinating. a spi- It's it's like a spider's web. Everything is linked. It's at some like, like you said. In some respects, it's kind of simple, but complicated at the same time. It's simple when you start thinking Mm -hmm. holistically. It's simple when you start thinking there's multiple factors at play and it's not unknown, cause unknown, you know.
1: um, Oh. You know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's something. um, Gosh, I I, I sometimes feel a bit embarrassed being in mainstream mainstream psychiatry in terms of when we diagnose people with functional disorders which basically means we don't know what the cause is and there are theories about um, it being a sort of somatic physical representation of repressed emotions or whatever sort of um, gobbledygook people want to sort of interpret that as but I think there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on in medicine and, and people people not being believed um, or, or doctors not necessarily understanding what the root cause is so then if they can't pigeonhole you into a certain diagnosis and they just It then gets labeled as default as being a functional disorder. Um, when actually, and I agree with you. I think when you start to look at things holistically, the body's incredibly complex, but actually the solutions to take care of all health issues are fairly simple and and multitasking and can take care of many different symptoms of all different, um, sort of bodily system dysfunctions. So, so yeah, so things like getting your diet right and your, um, your fasting windows and your, Cold therapy and your detoxification regimes. There's there's just so many simple things that people can do that can really tackle a a lot of the underlying causes of different illnesses, if not all of them.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to do a little recap. The recap is the gut's really important. So I think I've heard Mm -hmm. that there's more nerves around the gut than anywhere else in the body, apart from the brain. The central nervous system so that's mm-hmm. quite a lot of nerves hanging around in the neighborhood and then you have a lot of neurotransmitters yep. actually made in the gut 50 percent 70 percent i think oh, yeah. serotonin and dopamine and then so essentially mm-hmm. your gut biome and your gut's really important and and what your gut biome is is really dependent on what you eat so whatever you feed your gut that will reflect your gut biome and the healthier and more varied your gut biome the healthier and more varied you know, your gut will be in your immune system and your happy hormones. And then, you know, you're more resilient that way. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go yeah. Let's go back a bit, right? What about things like past trauma and ancestral trauma? Say your dad was an alcoholic and your mom was stressed. And then during the pregnancy, you know, you're, you're going through all of that and then you're born will you suffer from some of that anxiety and stress that your parents had does that pass through epigenetics or anything like that does that affect and influence oh yeah
1: i'm sure I'm, I'm sure it can be and also sort of adverse childhood experiences um we know your body sets up a different stress response so often people end up having a more exaggerated stress response in the body so that's all to do with your HPA axis and sort of cortisol responses and stress hormones. Um, so uh, it's difficult. I, I think I'm, I'm just trying to reflect. I think in all the years I've been practicing mainstream psychiatry, sometimes that message gets lost or isn't even known about. Um, so people just have more of a simplistic overview. So they equate an adverse childhood experience with somebody not managing stress as effectively as maybe the next person would. Um, but I, but I think when you step back and take more of a holistic perspective, we can actually dial down into why that might be, and and it's not just all in somebody's head, and it's not just that they, it's not as simple necessarily as just learning better coping strategies. It can be actually about putting lifestyle measures in to lower your stress hormones and thinking about targeting things at that level.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think there is. I definitely kind of subscribe to some kind of like generational trauma. I've seen it so many times. Mm-hmm. Patience and like, and there's an example. I know someone who whose grandfather had a really tough time in the Second World War. POW saw horrific things, came back was never the same. And then that right. that 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 parent then grew up in a very you know cold kind of stressed environment because you know the dad was aloof and stressed out himself child was sent Mm -hmm. off to boarding school didn't like it you know had anxiety and stress there and then by the time they have a child the grandchild they're they're stressed they've got anxiety and and I I just feel like it passes on and you kind of have to break the cycle Mm -hmm. and you can I'm not saying that it's there and it's permanent it's fixed I just feel like your environment can shape things and then make you more like the tipping point can be like the threshold is lower so you then have to add in a lot of like resilient measures and coping strategies to make sure that you don't get swamped over by depression or anxiety (laughs) I don't know if it's making any sense what I'm saying
1: no I think I think that makes perfect sense. I don't know that I've got anything more to add to that. I, th- I think you've said it perfectly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so let's talk about some of the common mental health problems because, again, just as a clinician, I've kind of seen an epidemic explosion across all age groups. It doesn't even target one particular group. It's every, every aspect, every decade of, you know, the demographics, people suffering from anxiety is a big one. And then I think the next Mm -hmm. one is depression. I think anxiety for me is the the biggest thing I see. People are very anxious. And then depression is a very close second. So Mm -hmm. what is driving that? And then how, I mean, that's a big question, I know. And I've got theories, but I I really want to hear what you think. And then. What would you say, like, for anxiety and depression, these two big ones, apart from popping a pill, what would you advise, like, listeners, how to deal with that? Big questions, I know. Okay. Over to oh, you. Oh, yeah,
1: big question. So, um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of exploding anxiety and depression um, rates, I, I just, I. It's been going on for a long time, but I suppose my brain automatically goes to the last three years and isolation. So the the emotion of feeling isolated um, is one of the most toxic emotions ever, um, if not the t- most toxic emotion. And I think what's happened in the last three years in terms of lockdowns and um, just the deliberate isolation of people that has had such a profound effect I would say on people's mental health and well-being Mm -hmm. but I I don't know I don't know how far reaching the implications of that are going to be so obviously we've come out of the other side of the the sort of nonsense of the last three years um, but I still see people day in and day out who are still affected by everything that went on people who have been too afraid to come out of their homes for since the original lockdown, um, people obviously walking around still with material over their face, um, jumping away from people in supermarkets. I, I, think, I think there's been a huge amount of fear and isolation and, and that's very big for people and people have lost their businesses and had suicides and just everything else that you can think of in terms of what's happened since 2020 um so so that's one one aspect i think it's difficult because social factors come into it and the breakdown of family units um and just general support that people have so um i think there's less community these days um and again that adds into the isolation theme um so that can be absolutely hugely destructive for people and and their mental well-being and their mental health and then you come more onto the modern environments. So our light exposures are all terrible as a as a whole these days. So um, we're we're indoor living, uh, surrounded by toxins, you know, left, right, and centre in the environment. We're being um, we're being exposed to toxins in just so many different ways. So whether it's even when you're outside in the environment, glyphosate, and other fertilizers and, and pesticides that are being used and then the stuff that they're spraying mm. <laughs> in the sky <laughs> um, and um, heavy metals that we're exposed to and different medications um, and then also pharmaceuticals that directly impact on mitochondrial function. So there's, there's all of those issues that are going on as well. Um, I think we don't detox very well. So that's why the sauna routines are so important is to try and get some of this stuff out of us. Because um, when I think about the number of antibiotic courses I've had in my lifetime and the the injections that I've had over the years in terms of having to go to medical school and hep B and flu, flu injections and all of those and all the aluminium that you're exposed to, and other heavy metal toxicities, then it's just so important for people to trying to be detoxing from that sort of stuff. Um, And then there's our lifestyle choices. So not just light, but our food choices. So most people are living on just highly processed, seed oil ridden, processed food. Um, And it's amazing really when you think about human evolution and what we likely evolved on each on eating. Um, so that was mostly meat, animal based diet. And then the whole agenda and push for veganism these days and plant based processed rubbish. Um, and, and it's interesting when you look back, because I don't know about you, but I just feel like I, all of that processed junk was com- entirely normalized. And it's such a societal and cultural issue. It's advertised left, right and center. Children are hooked on. On sugar, which is a drug, um, from a very young age, and and really people have very little chance because the the food, the government guidelines, um, you know, are fraudulent essentially. So the going back to the seventies when they produced the food pyramids and the Harvard scientists were paid off by people in the sugar industry to put carbs and. Grains and processed foods as, as the mainstay recommendations for people's diets. People were bombarded with that message left, right, and centre, and and it's just extremely difficult for anyone to know um, how to make the right choices because I think we've been given the wrong message for for decades.
0: Hundred percent.
1: I'm sure there's other things as well, but
0: <laughs> the fact that giving poison is now deemed you know a treat. Oh. Let's go down to this fast food joint for a treat, I'm like what, and some people were like, poison's a very mm-hmm. strong word, yeah, it's low dose, you know it's a low dose to- poison mm-hmm. you know it's still poison, it's not good for you, it's full mm-hmm. of garbage and things that aren't healthy for you yeah why would you why would you why would you call that a treat?
1: They have- I mean, the wealth of the big food industry far surpasses that of the pharmaceutical industry even. And we know that they have people employed specifically to make the foods more addictive because there are certain people who've whistleblown on the industry and spoken about how it was their job to think of strategies to make the foods more addictive for people, you know, in terms of the ratios of sugar or carb and fat and and um, to make food ultra palatable. And that drives hyperphagia or overeating. And so I think there was a clear agenda to get people addicted um, to all of that.
0: For sure. 100%. Yeah. It's just just like the agenda of advertising is just complete lies and deceit and it's psychological manipulation. Advertising is just psychological manipulation to make you buy something you don't need. And then, you know, the big food Mm -hmm. is exactly the same to make you eat food that's not nutritious and not good for you. And to consume it in vast quantities, and it, it really is worrying mm-hmm. the trend that we're seeing, and we're just becoming sick, just everywhere you look people are sick and mm-hmm. The biggest challenge for me as a father is trying to educate my children. I have to tell them like you know every single time there's a birthday and there's, a, there's many birthdays you know in a classroom in a year, they all come out with these little sweets, and my kids now know to give me the sweet, and I put it in the bin um. Mm-hmm. But you know, I have to keep reminding them oh. that we're doing this because this is full of garbage, and I don't want you to eat this garbage. And and I think they're getting yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're getting it.
1: Yeah, my one of my biggest regrets was just um, kind of going along with things and and not wanting. So my son's 11 now, and feeling like I didn't want him to be out of place and letting him eat all of that junk at people's parties and so on when he was much younger although I have to say I think they learn a lot by example and it wasn't that long ago he said to me oh mum I want to be keto in fact there was one day he said to me he wanted to be carnivore um but he hasn't done that and that's okay that's fine he is pretty much keto though and um after quite a while, it was just out of the blue. I think seeing what myself and my husband eat at home, um, he just decided he wanted to do that as well. And I think it's helped as he's gotten a bit older because he's had a bit more of an interest in how he looks and wanting to build muscle and physique and, and really into football. And you know, all, all the sportsmen out there that that children tend to look up to. Um, so somebody like Erling Holland, for example, I'm not into football whatsoever, but I know about him because it, because of his sort of carnivore type lifestyle and intermittent fasting and cold therapy and all the biohacking that he does. Um, So I think there are some really positive influences out there, but yeah, um, I think children learn best by example. And um, in fact, I've I've made an appointment fairly soon to go into my son's school because he's meant to be going away with school for five days in November. And when we went to the information evening, um, I I, I was almost late for it. I was stood at the back and then, the teacher was talking about um, the different days, what their itinerary, what they'd be doing and then where they would be going for lunches. And so it was like this day they can pick a sandwich for lunch and then this day, next day we're going to McDonald's. And I was stood there thinking, oh, I'm going to have to speak to them because I'm not OK about sending him away to just live on cereal and processed junk um, when he doesn't do that at home. So that'll be an interesting conversation coming up. Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. Thank you. I need
0: it. (laughs) You know, going back a bit, going back a bit, you talked about the first thing you kicked off was isolation. It's really funny you Mm -hmm. should say that. I um, I spoke to someone called Travis Christofferson. I need to release the podcast this week sometime. I've done too many podcasts. They're all backed up. And um, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. It was about cancer and health. And he talked about the importance of human connection. And mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And it's not just communities and friendships, it's family. You know, you talked about the family being broken up. Mm-hmm. I really do believe that. Mm-hmm. And the family unit isn't what it used to be. It used to be really tight. Husband and wife were a team and kids were taken care mm-hmm. of. But nowadays, I hate to say this, again, just my observation, I'd probably say eighty percent of couples are not really happy or what I would consider, you know, a healthy marriage or partnership. And the children are very disconnected, mm-hmm. they're taken care of by nannies, they're put into after school clubs or whatever. Parents don't spend much time mm-hmm. with screen them. time. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of mm-hmm. screen time. And and husbands and wives are both mm-hmm. working like crazy people. They're stressed out at work. Work is, everywhere work is stressful. Mm-hmm. Demands being placed on them is ridiculous. They come home all wired up, tight, tight. And you know, men want to go into their cave and watch TV and sports. Women want to talk to someone, but the guy doesn't want to listen because he wants to get, get into his cave. And so you've got people just living together.
2: Father-
0: I know. Yeah. It's just, but, but you see what I mean? Like what I'm trying to say is um, everyone yeah. is wired up. But... They're not connected. And so they might be living under the same roof, but the kids are on their iPads or their phones in their rooms. Husband and wives aren't really talking Mm -hmm. to each other. They're just going for the motion. And it's sad. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not healthy. That's not normal. No. And I think it's because of the... Oh, no, it's all... But it's engineered. It's the stress, the time demands that are being placed on everyone. No one has me time. No one has reflection Mm -hmm. time. No one has time to pause and think and hug and just be a family do you know what i mean and i think that's a big thing yeah
1: yeah yeah absolutely it's all about disconnection and and um i i don't know about you but certainly you know i'm not i'm not averse to a hug i'm probably not the huggiest person in the world <laughs> but certainly certainly during um 2020 and and during the lockdowns i do remember distinctly thinking God, I just want to, I just want to give some of my friends a hug and really missing that, that side of things. And, um, yeah, it's just been crazy times, crazy times. But yeah, I I agree with you. I, I think, I think it might be about the long game and just driving, wearing people down slowly but surely. And, um, yeah, I don't want to sound too negative, but yeah. Dysfunctional family units and dysfunctional health service. That's just what's coming into my head.
0: It is, well I'm I'm very much into hugs. I think hugs is what all (laughs) all all the freedom movement people do when they greet someone, a fellow friend. See, I think
1: I'm more into them now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we meet face to face again, you're getting a hug, lady. You're not getting a handshake or a fist bump. Do you want a (laughs) fist bump, elbow bump? Whatever.
1: I nah. said, <laughs> you know what? I hate handshakes. I just think handshakes are really cringy. Um, but I don't know what my problem with them is. But yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of handshakes.
0: <laughs> oh, talking about funny
1: handshakes
0: again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, no. let's, let, talking about cringeworthy oh. handshakes. I used to get a lot of weird handshakes, like weird kind of limp oh. thumb over my oh, thumb, no. like a really weak weird, and I'd be like. I, you know, I would say to the patient, what, what kind of handshake is that? Come on, give me a proper manly handshake. Well, what is this? And they would look at me like, like you know, aghast. It was only years later I discovered, it's a, that's the Masonic handshake. It's a Freemason handshake.
1: <laughs> oh, I did not know that. Okay.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. All ears. And I'm telling you right now, it's oh, wow. not it, I don't like it. It's a very uncomfortable handshake. It's like, what, what, what are you doing? Don't do this to me. I'm not in this club. No, (laughs) give me a proper handshake.
1: (laughs) Oh, there's nothing worse than that. I do you know what's coming into my head is years ago when I was training. We had psychotherapy supervision, and there was this amazing psychotherapist who's just. Do you know when somebody is just a brilliant teacher and you learn so much from them? And I remember we were just. Just little junior trainees still trying to find our way in the world of, sort of psychiatry and psychotherapy. And um, one of us asked the question, oh, should you shake your patient's hand when they come into the room? And then he, he put on this big demonstration to us about, and and I think he asked us to all shake his hand. And then he was saying, um, just making a big display of was that information that you really wanted or needed, and, and was saying about how intimate that can be in that sort of situation. And anyway, it's just um, it's amazing what you can pick up on from a, from a handshake. But the 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 really the really uh, weak handshakes, yeah, it it almost sends shivers down my spine, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe rightly so. <laughs> yeah,
0: it would leave me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Anyway. Moving on. Moving on. So yeah. what made you move towards a carnivore diet? I take it you weren't born carnivore. <laughs> like <laughs> when, when did oh, it no, happen? I was, um... When did it happen and what motivated you?
1: Okay, so July twenty nineteen is when it happened. Okay. Um I'd been <laughs> I'd been properly keto for two or three years before that. I forget now exact time scales. But i kind of been into low carb stuff for 20 odd years, although I'd been in and out of it because um, I've got a raging sugar addiction, um, but didn't really fully understand that until I went carnivore. And I, went, I decided to try carnivore just purely out of curiosity. So I didn't feel like I had any major health issues at the time. Um, but it was a keto influencer who I really respected her views um, called Vanessa Spina, so Someone I'd bought meal plans from before and followed a lot of her content and social media. And I think she was doing a carnivore experiment one day. And that's when I first heard of it. When I looked at her dish of food on Instagram and I thought, what on earth is she doing? Uh, and then I just looked into it. So I watched, um, a video where Michaela Peterson told her personal health story over the years and the, the huge, um, Huge benefits that she saw from a carnivore diet in terms of resolving, um, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis and bipolar disorder and all sorts of different, different physical issues that she had. And then I, I also listened to one lecture from Sean Baker and
2: mm. um, where
1: he was just really talking about how broken the nutritional epidemiological research, uh, base is. And I just thought, oh, I want to try this and I'm a bit of an all or nothing person. So I just decided then and there I was doing it and didn't think about it again, just did it. Um, so that's how I got into it. And then I just had so many health benefits that I wasn't expecting that I've just never stopped doing it. So um, although I didn't feel that I had any major health problems, it really revolutionized my relationship with food. So it, it brought me to a state for the first time in my life that I'd never experienced before, which was um, having complete satiety when you eat, being able to go for long periods of time without having to rely on having another meal. So it made fasting a lot easier um, and just having absolutely no preoccupation or food noise. So so no, um, I just found that my thoughts were never occupied by what I was going to eat next, whereas when I still had some carbohydrate in my diet, there was this constant preoccupation and and um, thinking about food that would happen. Um, and then also my immune health improved significantly. So I used to be somebody who, even when I was keto, I would have sort of viral type illnesses, if I'm allowed to say that. I'm um, <laughs> thinking about some of your customer base, but, you know, getting sick every so often and having sinusitis and those kind of issues. and. Um, I think well, after I went carnivore, I, I don't think I had a cold for at least a good couple of years, and went all through all through uh, 2020, 2021, working face to face with people, and, and um, never feeling ill at all once. Do you know what? Um, there's been other benefits as well.
0: But everything you've just said kind of describes me. It really does. I had a very guilty relationship yeah. with food. I had a major sweet tooth at the worst point mm-hmm. I was getting up in the middle of the night, having a bowl of cereal. It's really bad. Oh wow. Mm.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't think I've ever done that, but I've certainly done many other things like, um, <laughs> there was, I, I was a really big sex in the city fan when it was out. Um, so that kind of took me through my university days and there was a scene in it where, where Miranda, um, I can't remember I think she'd been given a big chocolate cookie or some sort of I think it was at the scene where um, she had a a big cookie you know those cookie cakes um, where you can people can write happy birthday and stuff on them and someone had written I love you on it and then she didn't really reciprocate that feeling so she ended up eating half of it um, feeling sick and then she put the rest in the bin and then later on, you see her fishing it out of the bin. And I've definitely done, I've been in that situation before. <laughs> Not with a big chocolate cookie, but um, just other food where I felt out of control. And I thought, okay, I need to get rid of it now. And then later on, the thought creeps back in, creeps back in. And then you find yourself uh, actually getting food out of the bin.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: There's all I'm, sorts of stuff that addiction makes you
0: Yeah. I was addicted to food and I had a guilty relationship with food. I'd feel sick afterwards and feel Dirty and poor self worth, I'd find my mood did fluctuate. I was just not healthy. And, um, you know, I was really, you know, in a bad way, type 2 diabetic, fatty liver, blood's all over the place, hypertension, overweight. And then um, I started with the intermittent fasting. And the, the, the great thing about intermittent fasting is it just really controls everything, it just stops this wild fluctuation and it kind of normalizes your insulin levels. And then naturally, you, you start drifting towards one meal a day. So your, your eating window just starts to go, get smaller and smaller over time. And you get to the point where you're like, I'm not really hungry. Why, You know, it's a bit of a faff making two meals. I'm, I'm a bit lazy. Mm-hmm. I'd quite like to just make one meal a day. Thank you very much. And, yeah. and the idea yeah. when you're really, you know, hyper insulin levels and, you know, with this sugar Craze addiction, you know, the idea of having one meal a day is just ridiculous. You know, you're, cause you're kind of eating 18 hours in the day. <laughs> not, oh. not the other way around. Okay. Um, but when you get rid of that hyper insulin, insulinemia and you get to the one meal a day kind of point, you, you naturally, I just found my sweet tooth started to go away and I didn't really want. And, and if I did eat something sweet, I'd be like, Oh God, that's disgusting. That's so sickly sweet. And my wife started noticing it goes, Wow. Wow, you're you don't want that? I'm like, no, no, that's too sweet for me. And I never, and I never used to mm-hmm. speak like that. And then it got to a point where I found if I had carbs like pizza or anything like that, I'd be really feeling bloated and I'd feel drowsy and just not in the game. And if I kept more carnivory, I felt very light and I felt strong and just more stable. And like you said, the satiety was there. I felt full but without the bloatiness so without even knowing yeah, it i would sorry without even knowing mm-hmm. it I just kind of have drifted towards carnivore but I'm not absolute you know I will have a little bit but it's about 80 percent that's where I am now
1: yeah I was just yeah but something that really amazes me is on carnivore you could have quite a big meal and then just go and work out immediately afterwards and it doesn't affect you in the way that having other types of meals would prevent you from being able to work out. And I'm not I'm not a I'm not a severe gym goer or anything, but I've certainly tested that out and it's definitely true. And you see other people really into fitness who just just eat and they can sink a fair amount of meat in a meal and then just go off and work out without any bother with stitches or or feeling sick. Um and uh yeah, I mean when you were talking there, I was thinking I, I used to be the person who would get carrot cake and just eat the icing because I had such a sweet tooth and it, it was wow. it was a raging addiction and I am I, um, but Ahmed, the thing is I spent years I must have bought every single book there is out in the market about emotional eating because I I think when you're a sugar burner and then this sort of dysfunctional uh, relationship that people develop with food over the years, you can end up using it to manage stress and different emotions. And I used to think that I was an emotional eater, I read every single book on the, on the subject and nothing really helped. But when I went carnivore and it completely changed um, my metabolism and took away any cravings for foods whatsoever, I, I suddenly realized that actually I hadn't been an emotional eater all, the year, all those years. It was just an addiction um, that, that sadly isn't recognized um, enough these days.
0: I still do crave food, certain foods. I'll tell you what I crave. I crave meat. When, when, when I get to about 21 hours, which is when my window is about to close, and I suddenly go, oh, it's time to eat now. That's actually when I get hungry, by the way. Unless someone tells me, I don't even know. Like, if I'm busy, I don't even know I'm getting hungry. I mean, sometimes I'll get a little hunger pang. It will literally disappear within a few minutes. And, it, you know, it just comes and goes. And I I can easily bat it away. It's not like I'm a hostage to it. Yeah. Um, But then when, when I know it's about time to eat and I should start preparing something, I just want meat. <laughs> I just want big plate of meat. So I've just I've just had um three lamb koftas with three scrambled eggs and it was delish. Mm -hmm. You know, and it filled me up and and I had a bit of dark chocolate. Seventy percent. Um and and that's it. I'm done now. You know, it wasn't like um I wanted pizza or bread or toast, which is what I used to really want. I wanted carbs, I wanted pasta and all that kind of stuff. Now it's like I want a big plate of meat (laughs) and then and then I'm done.
1: I do, I do crave that. Yeah, I mean, that that just sounds like hunger to me, but um, I don't know what your experience has been, but mine has been that in terms of clarifying the signals of either being hungry or being full, again, carnivore just took that to a whole new level for me, um, as opposed to what keto had done. So keto really helped. But um, from my personal perspective, when I'm basing my diet around meat and animal foods, it's very clear to me when I've had enough to eat. Um, and it's also, you go hours and hours and hours not thinking about anything, not even necessarily noticing when hunger starts to come on. Um, but then it's also just very clear when you're meant to eat again. And it just, the relationship becomes extremely simple and straightforward. And uh, yeah, that, I think that's um, the beauty of it.
0: Yeah. I'm just looking at my well. time on my app. Um, it's loading, the reception's a bit poor here. Yeah. 20 hours that's my average and it's just it's just consistent and you know I would never have thought I'd be able to fast 20 hours before and it's actually quite easy Rachel it's quite easy Mm -hmm. so listen can I ask you something what is your weekly diet like you know what what are the browns eating in their household when you say carnivore diet (laughs) just (laughs) sketch out roughly what does that actually look like
1: sorry I'm just laughing there because um when you say the Browns, because sometimes my husband has got a different surname to me, but oh. sometimes delivery people just assume he's got the same surname and they call him Mister Brown, and it really, really annoys him. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so my preference when I can do it is to buy from local farm, uh, local farms, and, and trying to focus more on regenerative agriculture because. Although I don't think everyone needs to do that. I think in a perfect world, that is what we should be aiming for. And actually the the nutritional quality um, of the meat and the animal welfare and so on, it's just so much better. Um So I, I order a lot of food from a farm down in the Scottish borders called Peelham Farm, and they do an amazing range of different sausages. Some of them are spiced, some aren't, but none of them have any bread as fillers. They're all, you know, 99% meat with whatever spices um, are added to the recipe. Mm. Um So this morning, for example, I had pork sausages and scrambled eggs. And I've been typically eating two meals a day, so I won't eat again until kind of early evening and then it might be some lamb chops or ribeye steaks a favorite, but I do burgers and I mean I focus my diet around med- around red meat. And that's been another interesting part of the carnivore journey because in the beginning I started off with chicken and, and fish and so on. And yeah. just over time Um, I think it happens to a lot of people, but I I end up craving red meat and I don't feel fully satisfied. So I will get a lot more hungry if I haven't had my red meat quota. Um, I also think DHA is really important. So um, getting some sort of wild caught fish um, now and again, or I, I tend to include salmon roe. So that's a really nice form of DHA. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of making more of a conscious effort to include that as well. But essentially red meat, eggs, um, butter, ghee, um, some fish, um, and that's it, pretty much. Very, very very similar. So we
0: we, um, have lots of sausages as well, Um, beef sausages, lamb sausages, and venison sausages. Um, I don't eat pork. Um, Mm -hmm. Originally it was religious and now it's just because I'm psychologically programmed not to eat pork. (laughs) But I've heard lots of things from (laughs) carnivores where they say all meats aren't the same. And actually it's very difficult to get good Mm -hmm. pork and chicken because they're fed grains Mm -hmm. and unhealthy diets themselves. And Mm -hmm. lamb is really good because it's all pasture fed, especially in this country. And beef, pasture fed Mm -hmm. beef is great as well so it's grass fed pasture fed um, and yeah. beef i mean that's just nutritionally so dense and so healthy for you so you know i kind of like mm-hmm. you have you know I, if i do get meat it's from a local regenerative farm it's all free range organic chicken and and the venison's wild and it's mixed with the beef fat for example in the sausages and it's just great okay. the meat quality is just so much better than what you get in the supermarket the taste is just you you know straight away and and I've actually stopped going out to restaurants, one, because I can't afford it. But two, you know, I, I just find it's not as tasty. The steak that I can cook up at home is so much nicer than what I would get in a restaurant. That's charging a, an absolute bomb for, for something that doesn't even taste nice. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've definitely drifted towards the red meats. I'm, I'm like you. I find that unless I have, and and not even that, I used to be like, oh, you know, averse to fat. I'd be like, oh, you know, several years back, I'd be like, oh, don't know how anybody can eat this fat. Um, you know, I would have a beef fillet steak or whatever, just lean. Now I'm like, give me fat. I want a ribeye and I, I love the fat and I just, I crave it. It's like, ah, it's great. I love it. And I, um, I get bone marrow as well and, um, roast the bone marrow. I love bone marrow gravy and bone marrow sauce. And, you know, and my kids are like, dad, that's so much fat. And I'm like, and do I look fat? And they're like, no, I went, this is a common Mm -hmm. myth. Fat doesn't make you fat. Sugar does. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to teach my kids yeah. every day, you know, just you know, tell mm-hmm. them all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, that's like that's what I, my dad's like. I think,
1: yeah, I mean oh, that sounds perfect. I, I I just think the average person wouldn't believe how many calories you can take in in the form of fat and protein and not put on weight. In fact, for oh, lots of people, tend to lose weight when they ditch the carbs from their diet. And I wouldn't have believed it myself. So. Um, I had a history of really calorie constricting during my uh, calorie restricting during my teenage years, and you know, during the '90s, it was that whole fat is bad, low-fat era. And I remember living on like fat-free yogurts and hundred-calorie things. It was just uh, horrendous. And I sometimes just laugh to myself and think, what would the '90s version of myself think of me now when I'm chowing down on lots of fat from fatty red meat or I used to include cream in my diet and in fact when I went keto that that was a really big thing for me I used to get uh, frozen raspberries and organic pouring cream and then just pour it over and mix it all together and it made this really incredibly delicious almost like raspberry ice cream and I remember when I first started thinking I'm just gonna balloon I'm gonna put on loads of weight doing this Mm. with the amount of cream I was eating and Mm. in fact just the opposite happened that was after I had my son so yeah. Yeah, that's what makes me think of.
0: Yeah, well, I'm the same. Like, I'm just so happy. Like all the fats, and um, I've almost got a six pack. I'm like, what? Can't believe I'm 48. First time in my life, you know, it's like, what the hell? This is this is great. I just so it's, whatever it is, it's definitely working. So I'm 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 totally with you there. I just feel like people need to understand that processed food is really bad. A lot of people say as well, carnivore diet is very expensive. I would argue it's not. I mean, for example, if, me having one meal a day, I didn't tell you, I have a lot of um, mm-hmm. mince. So like, you know, and you make beef patties out of that. And yeah. mince, mince does, isn't yeah. that expensive. Like if you buy just the mince and yeah, make yeah. it into beef patties and fried eggs mm-hmm. on the side, that'll really fill you up. And it's not that expensive. And it's that one meal a day. I think mm-hmm. vegetables are more expensive and they go off and they rot in your fridge. Yeah. You know, the rotting drawer that you've yeah, got. It's, you know, it's just like, you know, yep. I'm tired of the rotting drawer. You know, you're like, oh, it's gone out a date and you're just throwing it out. And um, so mm-hmm. all, these, and all these meals, like three meals of junk food, I think are more expensive than one healthy meal. I just think you need to just get your head around that. And it's not, not, not more expensive yeah. at all. The other thing as well is, you Definitely. know, um, just people need to learn to cook as well. Just get back to basics and mm-hmm. cook things from scratch. I think that's important mm-hmm. you know
1: but I mean it's it's just super easy because um years ago when I went through a vegetarian phase I was doing all sorts of elaborate recipes and cooking <laughs> from scratch and and, the, and like terrible it's such it's a real regret of mine that I did that but uh, hey we all live and learn um but yeah the cooking's just really simple now so I, I'm such a lazy a lazy chef these days so it's like quick sear of a steak or or stick something in the air fryer or in the pan. And it's just, it's just really straightforward and easy, easy peasy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I know, um, had Isabella Cooper here is into mitochondrial health. I don't know if you ever heard of her. And I asked her, what, does she, what do you eat? And she said, she gets this casserole pot and she puts this like leg of lamb in there and she cooks it slowly over 24 hours and no seasoning, no water, no nothing. It just cooks in its own water and mm-hmm. fat and, and then she adds a bit of yeah. seasoning at the end and, and that's it. And she says, absolutely delicious. And that's all I want to eat. And that's, that's how simple mm-hmm. her meal is. And I was like, wow. And she, yeah. was just, she was just like you. She was like, I'm very lazy. Can't be bothered with all this other stuff. I was like, wow, interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, definitely from a mitochondrial perspective, fat and protein is, is healthier um, in terms of we get more energy out of our mitochondria from and and more structured water or easy water that a lot of people refer to as as in terms of exclusion zone water so you get most from fat um, a bit less from protein and then carbs um, I can't remember the exact figures but you're probably going down to about 50-55% or thereabouts um, in terms of the amount of structured water that the body produces so I think once you start to really dial down into what's happening at the level of the mitochondria, then all, all becomes clear about how we should be living and what we should be putting into our bodies.
0: 100%. So
1: yeah, interesting. And there's, there's lots of interesting stuff coming up about deuterium now um, in relation to food and mitochondria. So I've got a really good friend in the quantum biology uh, field so she influences me a lot in terms of sharing just scientific studies and anecdotes and um, certainly fats are the optimum fuel when it comes to lowering your levels of deuterium and avoiding deuterium which can be detrimental for mitochondrial function and I've definitely heard. grass-fed meat yeah
0: sorry i was gonna Lower say I've deuterium
1: heard. as well and needing to avoid your
0: I've heard about deuterium, and I really don't know much about it, and I need to look more into it.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean it's just heavy hydrogen, and it basically blocks up one of the um, the complexes in the electron transport chain. So it's the ATPase um, that doesn't like too much deuterium. And oh, honestly, Ahmed, the more <laughs> the more I learn, and the more I read the more I have ethical and moral um, dilemmas about continuing to practice uh, allopathic medicine because many of the treatments we give are very detrimental to mitochondrial health and especially in mental health In terms of the way research is going and what we appear to know now about the importance of mitochondria, just in terms of production of neurotransmitters and neurotransmission, so nerve communication within the brain, it's absolutely vital. And now I find myself questioning what I'm doing day to day in allopathic medicine because I'm actively... I mean, the main approach is prescribed drugs and a lot of these drugs um, are really deleterious for mitochondrial function, but a lot of drugs are actually deuterated as well. So they they have deuterium added to them Really, uh, and then the mind starts to boggle about, yes, <laughs> yes.
0: Like which ones? Um,
1: oh gosh, I, I think most probably. I'm still going down that rabbit hole, but um, it's, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but it. The drug industry uses it to, I I don't think it's to do with bioavailability, but it basically improves the performance of the drug. Um, I should have read about that before I came on. I've forgotten the exact details, but um, it's definitely a deliberate addition to medications to improve the performance of the medication. Um, But but as we learn more and more in this quantum biology field, then that suggests to me that that makes medications even more detrimental. Overall for our health. So, yeah.
0: It's a big statement where you're saying, you know, you're questioning your, your role and position in allopathic medicine. I have that sometimes.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I, I look around me at my colleagues and I think I, I've got nothing in common with you. I don't share your Mm -hmm. views on COVID. I don't share your views on the COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. I don't share your views on vaccines. (laughs) I don't share your views on mandates. Mm -hmm. I don't share your views on staying Mm -hmm. quiet and ignoring what you're seeing and what's happening. I don't share your Mm -hmm. views. I don't share your ethics and morals. And then I look at the way they practice. And it's incentive driven by making doing more interventions, not treating patients holistically because it takes time. And doctors don't have time. Mm -hmm. But rather than put their foot down and say... Sorry, I was going to say, rather than put their foot down and say, this is wrong. We need to practice medicine properly and we need half an hour with our patients and we will not accept five or 10 minute consultations. They just acquiesce mm-hmm. and cut corners and do treat patients in five, mm-hmm. minutes and get stressed in the process. And also the patient gets shortchanged. And so I, I'm surrounded by my colleagues and I, think, and I just feel like, I feel like I don't fit. Do you, mm-hmm. I feel like I have more in common with you than most of my colleagues. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I was just going to say I'm completely with you on that. I um, I don't disagree with anything that you just said there. And yeah, I frequently feel quite alone um, amongst colleagues in, in terms of lots of people are lining up to get more more jabs and um, there are constant emails coming around about the the sort of vaccination drive in the local NHS board where I work, including, you know, really wanting to hit the message home for pregnant women to be getting the jab. And oh, I just with every fibre of my being I'm really struggling with being complicit with that. And and do you but do you just stay quiet? Where do you go though? Because the NHS is such a Bureaucratic, unwieldy sort of organisation, um, and, and these are emails coming from the head of public health. You know, public health directors, and um, and then I've spent, spent the last three years just working amongst colleagues who have taken I don't know how many injections and been off, uh, been off with COVID. I don't know how many times, and and I, it's hard not to feel like. Am I the crazy one or is it everybody else in here? Because there are people yeah. like me who chose not to take to take the injection and I've never been off and I had antibodies when I checked and I never felt ill. And um I've had some colleagues ranting at me, sounding like like they were crazy for want of a better word. I remember one ranting at me about how as she couldn't live with herself if she brought COVID into the hospital, and infected all of her patients, and then it would it would um She'd probably take it home and her cat would get it and it would mutate and her cat would be cat zero. And, and this was in the midst of everything that was going on. And I stood there and the more she talked, the more I was stood looking at her thinking, you're, you're not, you're not sounding very unwell. You're sounding a bit unhinged. Um, and I sincerely think because I work in an open plan office, there were certain people who just, there was a, a variation of, Reactions, you know, in terms of how many people were using hand sanitizer and how often, and how many people were wedded to their masks, and for how long on their own outside in the car on their own. Um, but I sincerely think there were, would have been one or two colleagues had they found out that I hadn't taken the injections that they would have ousted me from that bit of the office. That um, because the fear was so so prominent in terms of the fear narrative and uh yeah i've forgotten now what you were saying but yeah i'm definitely in your camp and feel very alone
0: do your colleagues know you've not had the shots
1: i as some do so like a lot of nursing staff i work with do um so we've got a team office where a lot of our nursing staff stay and i'm friendlier with some than others and um there was one cpn and, and a Secretary, I work with who never took anything either. And the three of us have had our own narrative going the last three years and talking about, you know, different evidence that was coming out and coming, um, coming to the fore, maybe not in mainstream, but in other media outlets. Um, but I'm not all that close with some of the consultants that I work directly next to where my desk is. So I honestly can't remember. I think maybe one or two, no, but I didn't have explicit discussions with the others at the time, apart from this one who was going on about Cat Zero, because the reason the conversation started was she was telling me, oh, phone up because you can get your appointment now to go and get your vaccination. And I would said to her, I'm not sure I'm going to take that. And then that's what triggered off this com- conversation about her cat mutating. and
0: What and so the on. hell? What the hell?
1: And But like, you must... And then other colleagues...
0: So you're saying? So I
1: was just going to say colleagues who wouldn't open doors. Like, I had one colleague who was kicking doors open, not touching them with their hands. And, and yeah, I mean, it's it's just been quite a sight to
2: behold, to be honest.
0: And these are psychiatrists?
2: Yes. They're treating people with mental health problems? Yes. That's kind of worrying. Mm-hmm. That's kind of worrying.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. How do you... How do you fit in with all these people? Surely they must know that you treat people differently. I mean, do you give everyone pills the moment you can get, give them pills or do you try and treat them holistically? Do you get into trouble or, I mean, do people think you're different and you're a bit weird or, or you just get on with it?
1: Probably. (laughs) I don't know. Um, so a lot of them have known me for quite a a number of years and I'd hope that they, they know, um, or they have some respect for me as a clinician. Um, but I'm sure a lot of them think it's a bit wacky what I'm doing now using ketogenic diets with patients and recommending people look at, um, adopting a ketogenic diet for their mental health. And I've had, I've had a few difficulties with some just, um, interfering a bit with patients that I'm doing that with, as in suddenly asking them what they're eating and then telling the patient it's unhealthy. Um, so yeah, there are difficulties. Um, I work in a crisis service, so historically we have been fairly, um, fairly quick to escalate medications. Um, but my practice has definitely changed over the years, particularly the last few years. And I definitely focus a lot more on lifestyle interventions for people when that's possible. Sometimes somebody is acutely psychotic and really in a, a difficult, a bad way to take in new information. It's not always possible, and um, but certainly when I can, I do. And um, it's difficult to see a way forward for this because in the NHS, I'm thinking because as much as I would like and I'm trying to develop a metabolic psychiatry service where I am locally, I also worry about our regulators and um, being at risk, if I'm honest, in terms of being targeted for focusing more on lifestyle measures as opposed to pharmaceuticals because there does seem to be a bit of a pattern um, out there of, of our regulator not particularly taking kindly to people using naturopathic naturopathic medicine.
0: No, anything that basically goes against the government narrative. You know, you, you mentioned keto. Mm-hmm. Um, keto. Keto isn't wacky-wacky. Keto was used to treat people with epileptic seizures. Keto has Mm -hmm. been used in the past quite extensively, but it's just something, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of like gone into the history books. So I don't think it's that crazy. And I think food is medicine and keto is great for brain health and is the best fuel for brain and metabolism. So I don't see why, unfortunately, your colleagues don't really appreciate that there is a role to play in your diet in terms of mental health problems which you know is arising mm-hmm. from the brain at the end of the day um let's talk about things yeah. like schizophrenia and like you said psychotic illnesses okay. i mean i can see uh anxiety and depression being treated with lifestyle changes and some things you can't change though you know if you've got if you're in debt if you're family members died or killed themselves I mean that's that's going to cause you to get a bit depressed I mean I guess clinical depression is different from getting depressed but certain things around you environmentally you can't change even with lifestyle factors Mm -hmm. what about things like schizophrenia and these kind of you know real major illnesses how much Mm -hmm. can you control that for your diet and lifestyle factors
1: I think there's there's huge potential for people to control um, even conditions like schizophrenia using diet and lifestyle measures. So there's definitely case reports out there of people. So I think there was one of someone with schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially a bit of a crossover of schizophrenia with bipolar disorder. And I think they'd been unwell and symptomatic with hallucinations for decades and on all sorts of treatments. Um, and this was a study from decades ago it's quite an old one now and um but anyway when they were put on a ketogenic diet they eventually managed to come off medication and were symptom free um following decades of um symptoms and only partially effective medications wow and i people contact me quite frequently on social media so i know people who have had a lot of success using keto or carnivore and then other people who've used interventions um, such as niacin or, um, or different B vitamins. And again, another person I know of who was symptomatic um, with schizophrenia, who was doing a ketogenic diet but still symptomatic, and they went down a functional medicine assessment route and ended up treating underlying gut infections and then symptoms resolved that way. So I, I think there's there's huge potential um, Amazing. in all of that.
0: problem is you won't gonna, you won't get very many studies being funded for this because there's no money in it. And pharma will only fund things that, you know, are to their advantage. That's one of the problems. And people turn around and say, Dr. Rachel Brown talked about a case report. That's not evidence. You know, where's the randomized mm-hmm. double-blinded study? And I think the problem is that's now like a cop-out. People, you know, there anything that works that hasn't been proven with a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled mm-hmm. study is basically a sham. and and just hocus pocus wackery. Whereas actually, a lot of good stuff is done and we don't have the evidence. Um, but big pharma can pay for these studies and mm-hmm. yeah, there's no conflict of interest there. And they're not fudging the numbers mm-hmm. and the statistics. Wink, wink. Anyway, you know, we've talked about mm-hmm. how diet and lifestyle can improve mental health. What about the other way around? What happens with all these vegans out there? What's happening with them? Are they at risk of having problems? Are all these vegans, all these woke people, all these angry activists, are they are they like at risk of developing mental health problems because they're vegan?
1: I would say so, yes. So I would never recommend for somebody's mental health for them to go on a vegan um, or even necessarily a vegetarian diet because they're going to be certain nutrients that are deficient. Um and, you know, like B twelve, for example, but DHA and that that particular omega 3, so important for brain health. Cholesterol is absolutely vital um because it makes up so much of of our brain. Big bad cholesterol. And um, then there are there are unique Oh, big bad cholesterol. I mean <laughs> we've been lied to on so many different fronts, haven't we? <laughs> Do you know I often come back to if they Lied about food, then what else have they lied about? That, that's just <laughs> often, often. I don't know why that just resonates with me, but I've just often thought, well, if they can lie about that, then what else can they lie about? um uh, Sorry, I've forgotten what the original the original thought was there. Vegan, question.
0: vegan, vegan. Are vegan? Oh yeah. <laughs> are you susceptible um, to <laughs> mental health problems being vegan?
1: Yeah, but, but, you know there's so many nutrients in red meat particularly that have such a profound effect at reducing oxidative stress in the brain. So things like carnitine and carnosine and uh, ubiquinone um, and anserine and uh, creatine as well. There there are certain nutrients like that that just do not exist in plant foods. Um, And so unless you specifically target those and supplement them, um, I think you're just really setting yourself up to do you have for failure really in terms of
0: do you have more inflammation in your brain with like vegan plant-based foods and processed foods
1: i would assume so but I, do, I don't know if we have any studies to to show that off the top of my head um but certainly if you have a lot of seed oils in your diet so if you're having a lot of inflammatory linoleic acid so an omega-6 um, that gets into your brain and you're Brain burns it as fuel, even though it's not designed to, and that increases oxidative stress. So that increases inflammation. So, Um, and I think a lot of people sorry, Um, omega 3 to omega 6 ratios are really off, and that mm. promotes inflammation. And then carbohydrates promote inflammation. Mm. And then there are additives to food, like carrageenan is one example where they use that in studies to induce inflammation, and that's added to so many different processed foods. And so there's so many different avenues for inflammation to be to be sparked in the body. So this
0: is now a weird one. So Kellogg and the Seventh Day Adventists, Adventists, you know, way back, <laughs> pushed the food yeah. thing where they wanted people to have more plant-based carbohydrate cereals. They wanted to curb sexual urges and passions. They mm-hmm. wanted to nullify them. Yeah. How how effective and true is that? Does Eating meat make you more red blooded and passionate, and you know want to get into bed. If if that's the case, is it <laughs> is it also the the true the opposite? Whereas if you're vegan, you lose the passion, you lose the desire, and you lose those urges.
1: Um, I think different people are probably going to have different experiences there, and I think there are different ways of doing a vegan diet. So, it's for people who are doing whole foods and keeping it clean and not having not relying on processed foods and lots of soya sort of soya fake cheese, and those kind of foods i think I think some people will notice health improvements, and I think that will be because they remove more inflammatory things from their diet like seed oils um and and some of the more processed just junk food that contributes to inflammation and and presumably has knock on effects in terms of libido and so on i I am um, I, I mean, I absolutely agree about the whole Kellogg thing and the invention of cereals and saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And they had a very clear agenda for why that should be, just like you said, um, in terms of reducing libido. So I, I just don't know if there's any specific studies that I could think of where where that's been shown. But certainly what you hear from people who are going keto or carnivore is that All aspects of health improve, and hormonal health is just one aspect of that, and that includes libido.
0: Yeah. The reason why I'm saying this is I don't see many carnivores who are confused about their sexuality or their gender. I don't see many carnivores who are depressed or unhappy and on antidepressants. All the carnivores that I know are very happy, very passionate, Mm -hmm. great relationships, and happy bunnies and we mm-hmm. have an explosion of people with gender identity crises confused about sexuality yeah. maybe they don't have the desire and then they're confused maybe they don't fancy the opposite sex you know because they're meant to you know i don't know they're, they're they're non-binary you know but maybe the reason why they're getting all these problems is because of their diet and equally maybe it's got mm-hmm. something to do with the medication so i you know, I, I recently found out about PSSD. I did a podcast. I was totally unaware of this condition. Post-serotonin, mm-hmm. uptake inhibitor, you know, sexual dysfunction. But it's not just sexual. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know it numbed them. And they didn't feel anything sexually. They didn't. They had numbness in their genitals. They had cognitive problems. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I wonder whether mm-hmm. that's even driving some of this gender identity thing. Because if you don't feel anything, like you literally feel nothing. Yeah, yeah, Maybe that's why they think they're non-binary because they're not attracted to men, they're not attracted to women, there's no sexual fire in there, there's nothing, there's nothing. And um, I just wonder whether this is what's Mm -hmm. all linked, because I see all these problems on that side. I don't see problems with uh, uh, these problems in people who are carnivore. And I'm just wondering what's Mm -hmm. going on here.
1: Oh yeah, good question, I would say, very good question. And I suppose that's combined with the the narrative that's being pushed in terms of the the non binary stuff and gender gender roles and and gender variations I, had, I i years ago in my training, so in my last year of training, I spent a year doing the gender dysphoria clinic um so assessing people and being involved in assessments for and people who wanted to go through a change, but back then it was you were trans male or trans female, and it really did open my eyes and change my views on on that particular issue. Um, by the time I'd done that clinic for a year and, and seen various people, but in what way? But it bears no it bears no resemblance to what I see now in in terms of um people wanting to be gender neutral or just the amount of. Um obviously biological males walking down the street wearing um, you know, female dresses and so on, and not necessarily they don't necessarily appear as so though they want to be fully in the gender role. So they're not making any um changes to to, I don't know, body hair or or trying to present more as a female. It's just very blatantly obvious that they're male, um, but they're happening happening to be wearing a dress and and it really does boggle my mind, um, excuse me, because it's just so far from, removed from what was going on in, what year would that have been, 20, 2010 it must have been when I did that clinic. It's, it's, it's almost unrecognisable to me what's going on now.
0: Wow. Just 13 years. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Anyway, we've been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> I could easily talk to you for longer. Wow. I've messed you around yes. a few times with this podcast scheduling. And I have to apologize for that, Dr. Rachel Brown. Dr. Rachel Brown, where can people That's find you? I- if they want to book a consultation, a holistic <laughs> functional medicine, you know, a nice psychiatric appointment, wherever, where would they want to find you, an ethical doctor like you?
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so my new website is just uh, drrachelsbrown.com. And there's lots of information on there now and people can book directly via that website. I'm also still active on Instagram. So Carnivore Shrink, I'm going to keep doing stuff there. Um, so people sometimes get in touch that way. But the website is probably the the quickest way to book in.
0: So being an honest doctor and very transparent, I should let the listeners know that I think of you as a very good friend, Dr. Rachel Brown. Oh, you're one of, <laughs> no, you. I mean that. You're one of the very small group of people that I trust, who I think is ethical, decent, kind, and considerate and caring. Just a, just a good soul. And you know what? I feel blessed that we connected and we met. I don't even know how we did that. How do we did that? Was it through Instagram or something? I don't, I don't know. I met you at the PHA yeah, I- thing.
1: Yeah, it might have been. I think you just messaged me randomly one day. It might have been on, it must have been on Instagram, I think. Um But yeah, I'm just going to say the feeling's mutual, Ahmed. Mm. And I just, I often feel bad because I, I don't feel like I've spoken out very much the last few years. But I also had a GMC thing going on, which isn't a full excuse, but it's, it definitely factored in. But I just have so much admiration and respect for you and what you're doing on this podcast. And trying to get the truth out there to people um in amongst very difficult circumstances so so yeah i just want you to know i fully support you and what you're doing and and really appreciate so um i i um I just I I don't manage to listen to all your podcasts, but they really relieved a long journey, car journey I had to do. And I just listened back to back on a six hour drive, uh, heading somewhere to meet a very famous doctor that we both know, um, who's probably the mother of functional medicine in the UK. And then when I was driving home, um, I listened to sort of five or six more podcasts. And um, it's just so important to get that stuff out there.
0: Yeah, well. I'm actually going to see Sarah Myho next week and spend three, four days. She's invited <laughs> me over and I love her. She is such a good egg. And I think of yeah, her as a mentor. Amazing. She's like a mentor. She's such mm-hmm. a, a good human being as well. And we're quite lucky and blessed to know her um, for sure, for yes. sure. And I think this is going <laughs> to open up a new chapter in my life, practicing functional medicine. Um, I think mm-hmm. the fact that you're investigated by the GMC is a badge of honor, young lady. I think- <laughs> It's now obvious that the best doctors are investigated by the GMC. So there you <laughs> go. And yeah, club together. Yeah, the GMC wrote back to me recently, and because um, I asked, "Am I under any complaint or investigation?" And they wrote back saying, "You're under no investigation." Um, but yeah, I'm having problems at my work. We'll see what happens there. But currently, mm-hmm. I'm suspended, and it's mm-hmm. it was a bit nerve wracking. So again, talking about. Stress and anxiety, you know. Despite the fact that I've suffered a lot in my life, and I think I've got tough from it, it did knock me for six. You know, two, three weeks. I was like, "Oh my Mm -hmm. god, how am I going to pay my bills and my mortgage?" Got a really bad cold, and then I was just worn down. I've picked myself up. I picked Mm -hmm. myself up, and um, Mm -hmm. and I'm concentrating on, like all you said, um, you know, connections, you know, family time. Yeah. Friends, mm-hmm. know, loved ones, getting out in the sunlight, exercising, my cold baths, <laughs> getting good sleep. Sleep is important. Yeah. And, it, and it's really helpful oh, for and, sure. And even though the future is still uncertain, I don't know I just feel hopeful. I feel like everything happens for a reason. I'm just going to be okay. I need to trust in God, and it'll be okay. <laughs> right. Listen, can I ask you mm-hmm. something? Um, you're 175. Yep. You've lived a great carnivore life. You know, you've got your family, <laughs> your grandchildren all around you. You know, what words of wisdom and advice would you impart in them, health or otherwise?
2: I would just tell them
1: to question everything and to do their own research because I think the times in which we are living are very deceptive in many ways and I think you can't just automatically trust, trust the experts it's so important for people to do their own research and try to uncover um, whatever it is, maybe um, in terms of what's most important for them and for their situation and for their family. Mm. And, and I think also it's about following your own true path and just, just being aware of. You know, I've I've probably been guilty of not following my intuition at at times in the past, but just just paying attention to that little voice if something doesn't sit right with you um, and and giving yourself the space to reflect on it and try to work out where it is that you're being drawn towards. Because I think, I don't know, it's just a personal thing. I I think um, the journey that you're on is probably a spiritual journey and I feel a bit similar myself in terms of what's going on with me now career-wise and direction in life. So... All of that's really important.
0: Amen. Definitely follow your gut, gut instinct, 100%. Mm-hmm. Rachel, listen, I, I, I'm I, definitely going to have you back talking next year sometime, if you don't mind. Um, I think you've got so okay, many good things to you, say. Yep. So many good things to say. And I also want to hear how your journey is going. You know, I think it's going to be okay. very exciting. <laughs> like me, you're definitely on a journey. And um, everyone Indeed. listening, thank you so much for listening. and. To the now, I've broken through to the 300 mark, my 300 paid subscribers at £3.50 a month. Thank you so much. You're, you're taking some of the pressure off me. But it's still definitely not enough, guys, to look after my family and pay the bills and replace you know, my lost income. I need, I need more than that kind of support. There's 30,000 listeners now a week, and 1,400 of you are now subscribers to the Substack. If you can, please subscribe. It's just £3.50 a month, £35 a year. It's not very much. And you're supporting me to speak up and spread the love and the knowledge. Okay, folks? So dig deep, especially you Brits. God almighty, you're freaking tight. Tight. And um, to the Mm -hmm. Americans and the Australians in particular, I love you loads. And the Canadians, God bless you. You guys have been the biggest subscribers, and and I I really thank you for that. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, Brits. Come on, dig deep. Um, Rachel, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.